In commenting on the first Psalm and verse 6, and Psalm 1 verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Commenting on that verse, the, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, Martin Luther said this, So deceptive, says David, is the way of the ungodly, that unto men they may seem to rise in the judgment and to stand in the congregation. But he who is not deceived understands their ways and knows that they are ungodly. And in the eyes of him, they are not at all among the number of his church. So when it says that he knows the way of the righteous, but he also knows the ungodly, Luther says, men can deceive people in the way they carry themselves or the way they appear in their eyes. They can even rise in the judgment of people and be uh, distinguished in the church, but the Lord knows who they really are. And Luther was very wise in that observation. The reformers were no strangers to false men and to betrayal. Um, naturally trusting, they learned to be cautious, but they fought the inclination to be cynical. And that's sometimes a difficult thing to do. Um, one day when John Calvin was living in Geneva, he heard a knock at the door. And being a plain man, despite his reputation and really his office and place in Geneva, he answered the door himself. And on the doorstep stood a man who was obviously a gentleman. The way he was dressed and the way he carried himself was clear he was a gentleman. And the gentleman at the door asked to see John Calvin. And when the reformer introduced himself, the visitor was surprised to see someone of John Calvin's reputation answering his own door. Thought that there ought to be a servant or someone there to, to answer. And the gentleman explained that he was a stranger who had heard of the fame and, and the reputation of the great reformer, and he wished to meet him and to speak with him. And Calvin invited him on into the house, and they talked at some length about religion and, and the issues of the day in particular. And as the conversation went on, the visitor confessed that what he had heard about Calvin's learning, his wisdom, and his insight was certainly true. And he was impressed. And then he asked, do you have a garden that we can go out into to to just talk outside for a bit. I have some more I want to say to you. And Calvin did, and the two of them moved out into that pleasant environment of the garden. And the visitor asked Calvin why he had chosen to leave the Roman Catholic Church. And when Calvin explained, well, this stranger started offering counterpoints and urging Calvin to rethink his decision and to maybe think about returning to the church and giving him reasons why he ought to do that. Now, Calvin was unmoved by all those arguments, and after a while, he confessed to the stranger that there was nothing that could persuade him to ever return to Rome. And the visitor replied that if 
Calvin was afraid that there would be some retribution or persecution because he had left the church, um, because of his heretical beliefs. The man said, don't worry about that. You can safely put your life in my hands. And Calvin was sort of startled by that. What do you mean I could safely put my life in his hands? And before he could really react to what seemed to him a bold boast, the visitor revealed himself to be the papal legate or the pope's representative in public affairs who had just been to France on behalf of the pope on business with the Roman Catholic Church. The reformer was surprised, to say the least, that this is who he was talking to. And the first thing he did was apologize for not treating him with more respect. Um, his office, even though it was in a church that, that um, Calvin thought was corrupt, um, his office was a noble one, and it would require a, a certain respect, even under these circumstances. Now, after the cat was out of the bag, so to speak, the legate began his bargaining in earnest, telling uh, the young Calvin that if he returned with him to Rome, he could assure him a cardinal's cap. And children, that doesn't mean that he'd get a cap like a bird, but that he would get a high office in the papal system, in the system of the church. Only the pope himself held a higher position than that. But all this Calvin, of course, rejected. Rome had nothing to offer him because he had found everything in Christ. But the guest wasn't done yet. He said, would you mind showing me the cathedral here in Geneva? It was at one time a Roman Catholic cathedral, but now it was a Protestant church. And it had been reported that this great cathedral, this beautiful cathedral, was going to ruin under the Protestants, that they were destroying it and letting it fall into disrepair. But Legate didn't make any accusations. He just said, can I take a visitor's tour of the cathedral? And as they left the house, as they stepped outside, the Legate said, oh, and by the way, I'd like for you to have this. And he handed Calvin a pouch with 100 gold coins in it. And Calvin's immediate reaction was, no, I can't take that from you. And the legate said, just use it to buy books, and pushed it into his hands. And Calvin was a little undone because he, was, he couldn't be impolite, and so he took it in his hands, stuck it in his pocket, and off they went to the cathedral. When they arrived, the place was filled and attended by all the officers of the church. And the legate suddenly feared that he'd been betrayed uh, by Calvin. He suspected that they were going to seize him and uh, deal with him as Rome had dealt with Protestants. And for a moment, he must have doubted the wisdom of leaving his own guard and entourage outside the city. That's part of the deceptive way he came in. The reason he was standing on his doorstep with just a, a servant by his side was because he had left the army he was traveling with outside the city to not startle Calvin. 
Um, so he whispered in Calvin's ear that he thought, this is, this is a bitter betrayal. I feel like, like I've been betrayed. And Calvin said, no, there's nothing to fear. And it was just the only reason they're here is because it was appropriate that a man in your position should be attended by the leaders of the church. And so they're here. And then in front of all, Calvin took out that purse of gold coins and he put it in the deacon's box in the back of the cathedral and said that it should be distributed among the poor and announced that it was a gift from this worthy stranger who had come to visit. Um, the papal legate left Geneva with a much different understanding of who John Calvin was and of Protestantism because the cathedral wasn't in dis disrepair, it wasn't in ruin, it was well taken care of and he was treated with respect and dignity. But he suspected, he had heard from people who were jealous and people who were hateful, reports and rumors and suspicions about Calvin and his character and what was going on in Geneva. But when he went there and saw the man and interacted with him, all of that changed. And he had a new respect for John Calvin and for the, the Protestant effort. Now, this doubt that he had, this uncertainty that the Legate had, is the way with us. We often misjudge people and we misjudge situations unless we can see firsthand what it is we're dealing with. And even then, we can be fooled either by others or by our own perceptions, sometimes our own understanding of what's going on fools us. Perhaps you've had that experience where you noticed someone and you thought, boy, it'd be nice to get to know them better. And then you got to know them better and wished you hadn't. <laughs> you ever had that experience? I think uh, most of us have one time or another. Um, our eyes take in the form and the appearance of the person, but uh, they can't penetrate beyond that until more is revealed by the people involved. Now, we're talking here about the eyes of Jesus. A bit ago, I introduced this series on the eyes of Jesus. And at that time, we dealt with the mystery of the incarnation in the humble way that our Savior came into this world. We spoke specifically of his eyes in that context because as the Son of God, he could see all things. But as the Son of Man, he chose to look through eyes of flesh with all the, the limitations that are a part of that. Now for us, our eyes are wonderful things. Uh, these eyes given to us by our Creator, they're wonderful. They view things great and small. This morning when we got here early, the mountain out there was in the shadow because the sun was behind it. But as the sun got higher, the top of Mount Rainier turned golden. Uh, not white from the snow, but the snow reflected the gold. And it was just a magnificent sight. And to be able to see that and the subtlety of that is a wonderful thing. They were given to us for that purpose, to behold God in his glory 
and to drink in the beauty of the creation. But as you well know, they were abused almost from the beginning. It's interesting the way it's said in Genesis 3.6. When the woman, Eve, saw, saw with her eyes, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, there is a quality revealed in the determination of the Son of God to view the world through human eyes, eyes like ours, eyes that uh, opened the heart to such evil, that really speaks deeply of his humility, the humility with which he acted in the incarnation. He truly emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He truly did. Even by coming down and, and choosing to see through eyes like ours, as wonderful as they are to us, it was a tremendous step down for the Son of God. But when we begin to follow him in the Gospels, we see that the Savior saw things in very unique ways. The day after Jesus sees Peter, he leaves for the region of Galilee. He's been out by the Jordan where John the forerunner ministered, but now Jesus moves into Galilee and to the beauty of the lakeside. And he seems to have come to Bethsaida, a fishing village, um, perhaps in the suburbs of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, uh, Philip, Andrew, and Peter are, are from this village, and he comes there. And it's here that Philip finds or comes upon Nathaniel. And as A.T. Robertson says, carries on the work. One wins one. And Robertson says, what a great time that was in the story of the gospel. When one could win one. He said, now it takes a hundred to win one. But then that's this wonderful work is taking place where Andrew and Peter and so on, they all come together, just one winning one saying, come. And Philip's report to Nathaniel is plain, and it's really to the point. We read it a moment ago. In uh, John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And the reply of Nathanael to that report is legendary. Uh, entering the vernacular, really, as a proverbial saying, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And uh, as an aside, let me just mention that this is one of many occasions when John records objections raised against what Godet calls the messianic dignity of Jesus. He just mentions that John records these objections, and this is the first one of them, but it's one of many. And interestingly, he points out, John never addresses any of them. 
He raises the objection or mentions the objection that somebody raises, but then he never addresses that objection directly. But instead, he just presses on with a narrative in which anyone may see that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and could see his glory as of the glory of the only begotten son from the father full of grace and truth. So he doesn't deal with this here. He doesn't say, oh, so he's thinking it couldn't come from Nazareth and, hit, you know, and go into a long explanation. He says, Nathaniel raises this objection. Now look what happens and goes on with the story. And to Nathaniel's doubts, we have this simple but notable reply from Philip. Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see. Nathaniel says, what do you mean you found this one who is the fulfillment of the word of God and so on, the great promise? And can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip just simply says, come and see. And this whole section here plays with the idea of seeing and understanding. When it says that Philip found Nathanael, it is defined by seeing. He was looking for him. And then he saw him. And there he was. And when he tells Nathanael that they found Jesus, it's the same word. We've looked around and we saw him. And here he is. This is the one. And when you recall that they saw Jesus, when John the forerunner pointed him out and said, Behold, or look and see, that's what behold means, look and see the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. You see how looking and seeing plays such an important part in everything that's going on here. And when Nathaniel balks at the news, Philip says to him, well, come and see. Come and see for yourself. That is, come and fix your eyes on him and perceive or get an understanding for yourself. In happy tranquility, he leaves all Nathaniel's doubts to be solved by the Lord, whom he himself and his brethren, by coming and seeing, had found, says Besser. So the two friends start out to find Jesus so that Philip can show to him the Savior, and so that Nathaniel can see for himself Jesus. But the expectation of them both, I think, is really worth considering here for just a moment. Philip is assuming that when Nathanael looks on Jesus with his physical eyes, he will perceive something with his mind and his heart about who Jesus is. Nathanael goes with him with the intention of seeing the matter for himself, as if taking his physical eyes and sweeping them over Jesus will either confirm or prove false Philip's claim. So Philip says, come and see, use your eyes, look and see what's in front of you. And Nathaniel says, well, that's what I do. I, I won't believe this until I see it with my own eyes. We've all heard that expression. And this exchange is vital to getting a fuller picture of what follows here. Because Nathaniel has doubted Philip's report on what he has seen. Philip tells him to come and see for himself, and Nathanael has responded with the attitude, all right, I will come and see and judge for myself, 
I don't really trust Philip's eyes and his perception, but I'll be able to tell from my own sight of this man whether he is who Philip thinks he is. And then look what happens next. And what happens next takes on real life if you keep this attitude of Nathaniel's in your mind. Because we read, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him. So Nathaniel's marching out where from under his fig tree and saying, oh, I'm just going to go see this and see whether this is true or not. And while he's doing that, Jesus sees him. He sees him coming toward him. And he says of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, Nathaniel hasn't even had a chance to focus on Jesus yet. Jesus has already fully focused on him and completely identified the nature and character of his heart. Now, you can just see how those two things are in contrast to each other, right? Nathaniel's going to go, he's going to look it over, he's going to take some time and consider this, and here comes Jesus, and he already knows everything about Nathaniel. So Nathaniel's caught off guard by that, of course, and he says, well, how do you know me? And Jesus then says to him, before Philip called you, before he saw you and said to you, he's seen me and told you to come and see, he saw you, or I saw you. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Before Nathanael has a chance to see or do anything, we're told Jesus sees him. That is, sees and perceives or understands the man approaching him. With his incarnate physical eyes, Jesus sees this man that he already knows, that he has already seen in other ways. It's just something to think about. Because we see here how the sight of Nathaniel falling on Jesus' physical vision, his incarnate vision, brings forth this word of joyful commendation. He sees him and he says, Behold, look, here's a man in whom there is no guile, an Israelite indeed. And you who believe know the eye of God is upon you. Uh, his eye is on you this very moment, that it's penetrating your very soul, and it's taking into account your movements, the size of your heart, the elation that you feel when you're joyful, taking in your doubts and all your fears. But we have an expectation that to be absent from the body by death in this world is to be present with the Lord. And we anticipate that day, that hour, when we will look upon Jesus and that he will look upon us. And we will not be filled with crippling and cringing fear, but love because we'll be looked on with love.
He sees us now in all of our weakness and all of our frailty. All the things that impact our lives. All the doubts and fears that we have. But when we fall into his sight in the sense of being in his presence, we will be greeted with a look of love. A look of love. Here's, here, here she is. Here he is. Mine. The one I died for. The one who is my own. The one who is sincere. The one who is precious to me. And what a joy to think of that. The Song of Solomon, I think, expresses it. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16, the, the one who is speaking, who represents the husband, says, my, excuse me, the, the bride says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He gazes among the lilies. I am his and he is mine. He looks at me with love. In Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 9, you have captivated my heart, says the, the bridegroom. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. The bride comes in, and the bridegroom's heart is captivated. That's the picture of the love that Christ has for his church. Paul speaks of it in Ephesians chapter 5. Talks about how he loved his church and gave himself for it, that he might present it to himself in this spotless and beautiful way. And here in the Song of Solomon, that love that Christ has for his church is expressed in these beautiful terms. And if we ask, how can that be? How can it be that we'll walk into that moment, into the presence of the Savior, and be looked upon with such love because we're part of the church, the scripture answers back to you and me. It's because Christ loved his church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify it and cleanse it by the washing of water with the word. To present it to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That the church and those who are part of it might be holy and without blemish in his sight. Notice, too, that the Lord sees Nathaniel before he sees the Lord. Those who you invite to view Christ and his word, beloved, have already been under his eye. And that should be a great comfort and encouragement to you when you ask them to come and see knowing that he's already seen them. So you're going out and you're trying to share the gospel with somebody and you're praying about it and you're praying for grace and for the Lord to open their hearts and so on. It's a wonderful thing just to stop and reflect. He's already had his eye on them. And he's brought you to them to give this message. Come and see. Come and see what I've seen. Come and see. But he's already seen them. Secondly, despite Nathaniel's doubts, he's welcomed by the Savior. Jesus, when Nathaniel appears, doesn't sort of sit back and cross his arms and say, what do you think now about what comes out of Nazareth? Yeah, you thought you were so smart, didn't you? Asking that question and bringing that up. 
That's not the way he's approached at all. Instead, he's approached in this gracious way. Jesus says, look at him. Look at this man, an Israelite, in whom there is no deception, no guile. Hutchison says in his commentary, Christ will in mercy pass over the faults, prejudices, and mistakes of those who do not persist in them, but come to him. And Jesus then speaks of or about Nathaniel rather than to him. The man who is coming to examine him with this self-imagined discerning eye has already been seen by Jesus, not just in his person, but in his character and his nature. And we're not going to probe the analysis Jesus gives of Nathaniel at this time. That's been done on a lot of occasions. But we'll just say this quickly here, that we see here part of the mystery of the incarnation we spoke of last time. Jesus sees Nathanael approaching with his physical eyes, but it's clear that he saw more than the figure of the man approaching him, and that he saw Nathanael before he got up from under that fig tree to see who Jesus was, and if he fit Philip's description. The man who is coming to pass judgment has already been judged. And whether Nathaniel felt any sting of conscience when Jesus speaks of him as he does, uh, as a man in whom there is no deceit, who speaks his mind, that is, and deals frankly, we can't say. But Jesus does acknowledge the character of Nathaniel's faith when he describes him as an Israelite indeed. This intimates that Jesus knew that he was sincere and that his skepticism was warranted in someone uh, whose faith and expectations were genuine. There had already been many false Christs. Nathaniel's not casting his doubt on Jesus, but on the fact that there's someone who people are claiming is the Messiah. And because he's genuine in his faith, he wants to see if that's so. The mark of a true Israelite in the spirit is not perfection or sinlessness, but sincerity, whereby men and women have gotten grace and closed with Christ and applied the virtue of his blood, are able to serve God from right principles and for right ends, says Hutchison. This is what every true Israelite, every true Christian relies on, a faith that closes with Christ, acknowledged by him, and not our perfections or our sinlessness. Now, there's more to say of this story, and rather than pressing you now, because our time is gone, I'll come back to it, Lord willing, next time, and pick up here, and just to fill in the last part of this and some of the practical applications of it. But keep these things in mind that we've talked about here, that Christ knows us, he's going to receive us in love and rejoice in that and give thanks for it. And this week when you're out and you're having an opportunity to share the gospel, think about those people that may drive up because of the track and treat thing that we're doing. And we're thinking, 
You know, we're trying to get these people to come and see who Christ is. Remember, he's already seen them. And he knows their hearts. He knows who they are. And he knows those that he's preparing for himself. And so we should go to this work with great joy and, and expectation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless our time this afternoon in your word. Lord, this is a wonderful scene full of blessing, full of lessons for us. And we pray, Lord, that we would receive these lessons with joy and gladness. Father, what a great expectation we have. We don't know what a day may bring. We may wake up tomorrow in your presence. And what a comfort it is to know to know that we will be looked on with love because of what Christ has done for us. And we pray, Lord, that as we go out and share the gospel this week, that we will carry in our hearts this sense, this truth, that those we are speaking to, you've already looked upon, either with your favor or not. And Lord, it is ours but to tell them to come and see and to leave the rest in your hands. But how encouraging it is to know that they're under your gaze even now as we talk about it. Father, bless these things to our hearts today and bless us as we go to our homes and spend the rest of the day together. In Jesus' name, amen.